Hi, welcome to Eurocron. I'm your host, Scott Pitney. Eurocron is a podcast where we chronicle extraordinary people and their extraordinary stories. Our goal is simple, entertain, inspire, educate, and at times humor our audience while our guests build their audio legacy. So let's get right to our next extraordinary story. Our next <clears throat> guest on your cron is Mark Newey. Mark is the founder of the Mark Newey Method, found on the web at marknewey.com. That's M-A-R-K-N-E-W-E-Y.com. And of course, we'll have that on the Yurkron website. At the end of a successful but extremely stressful 20-year international corporate career, Mark had a complete breakdown. This led to a huge interest in the workings of the mind, a complete recovery, and a major career change. Mark has spent the last 20 years as a therapeutic coach and has helped thousands of people beat stress, anxiety, and depression. He believes that we completely misunderstand stress, anxiety, and depression in the West and that mental wellness education could wipe them out in a generation. Mark is therefore starting to deliver programs in schools in the UK and will be launching an online program in the summer. He is campaigning for systematic change in the way mental health issues are dealt with. Mark, welcome to your cron. Uh, thank you, Scott. Looking forward to this. And Mark is uh, speaking to us this morning from the UK. So uh, good afternoon to you, sir. Yeah, indeed, it is <laughs> afternoon after lunch already. <laughs> right. Um, so, Mark, where is a good place to start your story? Um, probably, if I'm honest with you, uh, right at the beginning. Um, perhaps uh, if I may, I'll give a little summary of, of the way I think that conversation is likely to go. A brief one, I promise that. Oh, sure. Um, Take your time. My, really, my story, as I think a lot of men, it's a, it's a similar issue. Um, in many ways, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. And, and the peaks have been about strength and power and confidence. And the troughs have been about um, weakness, shame depression and that sort of thing and my, as I go through my life you'll see that it is a bit of a roller coaster so uh, that and there are patterns there as well which is something I hadn't realized until relatively recently so um, so uh, with that little entree um, my first my first year was actually very difficult um, I can't remember that obviously because I was only one year old but um, I was actually born with very bad asthma and was in an, in and out of hospital um, literally two or three times a month. Um, and of course, in those days, um, parents weren't allowed to stay uh, overnight. So there's also been a theme of abandonment, which, of course, never actually happened. My parents never abandoned me. But if you think about it, you, you know, your first few months, uh, your parents disappearing um, irregularly is not great. Now, I can't remember that, obviously, but there's an imprint there, effectively, on the unconscious. Sure. Um, and so I, gradually, as I grew up, um, struggling, really, with, with, with asthma, uh, I was actually sent to um, private school. I, I don't know how you 
uh, do you call them private schools in the states? We do. Yeah, right. So essentially, a great privilege, you know, without a doubt. I'm very lucky to have been sent to private school, but it, mm-hmm. it was boarding, uh, boarding school. So I was boarding at the age of seven mm-hmm. with with very bad asthma. Mm. Uh, that was hard. <laughs> it was very, very hard. Uh, two things. One. I could see all the cool guys were the ones that got into the football, the soccer teams, the rugby teams, and I hadn't got a hope in hell. Mm-hmm. Not a hope. Mm. I couldn't run 100 yards, literally. Mm. And that, that was gutting, even at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, I think what left a bigger mark for me at that point was um, I actually got very badly bullied because of the asthma. Uh, you know, we s- slept in a dormitory, and there was about 10 of us in the dormitory, and of course, with asthma, I was probably at best breathing heavily, at worst probably, you know, wheezing rather badly. So I was probably making a lot of noise. So um, my first year, uh, the, the the what we call a school pre sorry the dormitory prefect. So he was mm, three or four years older than the rest of us. Um, used to pour water on me every night. Um, how nobody spotted that my bedding was wet, I never know. Yes. But the thing is, you, you hide that. It, it, it's very shameful. Um, you hide it. So I didn't tell anybody. Uh, and eventually, that Christmas, I think it was, I went home and I just I couldn't cope anymore. And I burst into floods and floods of tears um, and told my mum and my dad. And again, huge shame telling them. They were very understanding, obviously, but huge shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the years went by. Um, and actually, luckily for me, the asthma disappeared completely at 12. Mm. Uh, suddenly, I was able to run. Suddenly, I, I got into all of the, the, you know, the top sports teams at school. And suddenly went from being a complete wimp, uh, who was bullied all the time, feeling terrible shame, went to this cool guy because, you know, I was in all, all the teams and doing very well, actually. Yeah. Uh, and that, so there is the first pattern, if you like, you know, the um, starting off with a trough and then, um, you know, get, get on, on the roller coaster, getting a peak at around 12 or 13 when everything was going absolutely brilliantly. Um, and it, you know, it's like my whole life was opening up in front of me. Um then what happens in the UK, again, it may be different in the States, is at the age of 13, if you're at private boarding school, you that, that's a, a primary school, uh, you know, for younger children. Mm-hmm. You then go on to secondary school. Uh, and I went, so I went to a different school. And that was, you know, it was working out, continuing the sort of positive pattern, got into the sports teams and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually, um, we lived in boarding houses, so there were about a hundred boys. It was at boys only; um, were, were no girls there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a hundred of us, roughly, in a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my last year, I actually got elected uh, as head of house. So there was a proper election, which was very unusual in those days. Mm-hmm. And got, so that was a huge responsibility. Um, so there I was also a school prefect. So again, everything absolutely amazing. Um, responsibility, one of, uh, and in the UK or in, in England, we have all these rather, if I'm honest, archaic privileges in this sort of situation. So the school prefects were allowed to walk on the grass 
uh, and go um, walk up the steps into the main building in the quadrangle. Uh, we were the and there was only twenty of us, so only twenty out of a thousand uh, boys at the school were able to do that. So you know, it, it did feel amazing. I mean, it was an absolute privilege, uh, and everything, as I say, was going swimmingly. And then I did something really stupid. Um, <laughs> I a, fr a friend of mine got expelled. Um, probably my best friend actually got expelled, so he was sent away from the school for supposedly having um, got a girl pregnant during the school holidays. So we were 18 at this point. Okay. Um, and I was really upset about that. Uh, okay, you know, we're all at that age. Well, boys and girls are, you know, some are more promiscuous than others. But my point to the headmaster was this happened in the school holidays. This has nothing to do with the school. So I tried to argue for him to be reinstated. Mm. Uh, and basically got told to go away. And I was absolutely livid. I was really, really angry. What, what was his uh, counter to your argument, Mark? Was there any explanation or did he just, I don't want to hear it and, he, and get out of get out of here? Or what? Uh, well, I think the trouble is it, it was quite, um, what's the word? Uh, the whole school knew about it, obviously. Mm -hmm. and, and I think for the school to go back on a decision, so he, he, he was not, you know, he, he did not come to school one term. He was not actually allowed at school. So everybody knew uh, that he wasn't there. So I, I'm, I'm thinking, looking back, for the school to turn around and, and um, you know, reverse the decision, they felt they couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, um, to be fair to the headmaster, he was actually very sympathetic, but basically said no. Okay. Uh, and the stupid thing that I did was in my, um, <laughs> well, well, naivety partly. Mm. I, I didn't. Uh, a lot of the boys at school smoked. You know, mm. were smoking cigarettes. I didn't do that. And I was so angry. I literally met a mate of mine who did smoke, uh, and went off and had a cigarette. And you wouldn't believe it. I got caught. And I got caught by the housemaster of the of the house next door, who didn't like our house, and therefore I was the ultimate um, capture for him because he could then report that to the headmaster. And of course, that again, the shame that I used to feel when I was bullied and was very weak and so on as a youngster all came back again. Mm. Uh, terrible shame of having got caught because it's you know it's an not only is it it's an, an honour to be a school prefect, it's, it, and it's a responsibility too. So I was a role model to all of the boys in my house, and I fundamentally let them down, because obviously smoking was illegal. We weren't allowed to do it at school. Right. Uh, so I literally bombed all the responsibility that I'd been given, uh, and I felt I'd let the boys in the house down, I'd let my housemaster down, I'd let the headmaster down, um, I'd let all the other school prefects down, I'd let my parents down, and this was literally streaming through my mind at the time. Right. And if well, I'm honest with you, I, I had a mini collapse at that point. The, the shame was just devastating, sure. absolutely devastating. And Mark, what period of time is this? Uh, so this, it, what, in terms of age or years? Years. Uh, that would have been 1977, 1978. Okay, so 70s, and you're around 18 at the time. Yeah, exactly. Now, in those days, certainly in the UK, smoking was, cigarettes, 
for young youngsters was probably the equivalent of drugs, you know, smoking weed or something today, at least in the UK. So it was bad. Yeah, you and, know. and that, that's kind of where I was going because we're close to the same age, I think. Uh, I was in high school in the 70s. And just before my time, probably late 60s, early 70s, you could actually smoke cigarettes at school, at high school. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So a <laughs> no, little, little difference sure in culture. I'm not ever been in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not during my time. Uh, but, but yeah, uh-huh. just, just before they had designated smoking areas in, in high school, which just absolutely blows my mind. And uh, yeah, one, one privilege that we did have that we ruined for future generations is we could go out to lunch. Uh, you know, just, yeah, just leave campus freely, go out to lunch, come back. And, uh, of course that went away shortly after we left, (laughs) but, but, uh, anyway, I I just want to pause a second and kind of get a grasp on the difference in, uh, in schools. Of course, yours was a boarding school, so I would expect much more strict, uh, yeah, it was really, but, but more strict, but also in the older boys were given a lot of responsibility, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we were mentoring, even if you weren't a prefect, you were mentoring some of the the youngsters, um, sure. you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in, in what we call a sixth form, i.e. that's when you're taking your main um, exams, yeah. and you're 17 and 18, you, it, all of you take on some responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, obviously, the head of house has the ultimate responsibility. So... so is it- uh, yeah, this at this period, are you getting close to graduating from? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. It was about. Uh, it was well of the year, the school year that I, at the end of which uh, I graduated. It was. Um, it was the sec. It was the second of the third term, so it was the middle of the year. So it was again, you know, just before taking my exams, which was right. not good either. Yeah. So so you're <laughs> and then, okay. So you had a cigarette for the first time in your life did you inhale uh it wasn't actually to be fair it wasn't the first time in my life I, oh, again okay. i did it in the holiday i've done it in the holidays a little bit i didn't smoke yeah i mean some of my friends smoked i mean they mm. were on you know sort of 10 a day or something yeah uh so but um yes i think i did inhale probably yeah. And that, you know? that that wasn't a uh, Bill Clinton type question uh, in reference to the, <laughs> the pot or anything, but I'm just curious, somebody that grew up with asthma, what what that was like. It, it seems like your lungs would be more sensitive, but you know, maybe not. Maybe they were normal well, by I then. Think, I think I was okay actually, because by that time, where are you? I I lost the asthma for about five years at that time, so. Mm. Uh, but you're right. I mean, people do smoke with asthma, and actually, it's crazy when you think about it. Exactly. But uh, but the, the trouble is, it's at the end of the day, it's an addiction. Yeah. And they've just they've got more reason to stop than than the healthier people, but they still can't. Yeah. And that, that's another story. <laughs> right. Right. So so you got caught smoking, and so then what happened from from that point? Well, then, then, so I was uh, demoted, which means I was no longer a school prefect mm. uh, and was no longer the head of house uh, for the rest of that term. So as I say, I was, was just, the real point here is I was awash with shame, complete shame. Yeah. Uh, I was then reinstated, actually, the next term, but it didn't mean anything to me. I, I, I'd blown it, really. Yeah. Uh, that's how I saw it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, graduated from school, um, Went went to university, 
uh, got my degree in international um, studies, which was actually, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I worked quite hard, played hard as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the, that, that all went quite well, but one of the educating experiences I suppose I had was that uh, I joined one of the local rugby clubs. So r- rugby, obviously, for us is probably similar for you guys from uh, uh, to American football. So it's huge. It's big over here. Sure. Uh, um, and so, you know, local towns all have teams and so on. And, um, y- yeah, uh, and, and the, one of the things that left me with that, I, I enjoyed it, played well. One of the things I remember was um, in the showers, and this is this isn't this isn't going anywhere dangerous. Don't worry. In the showers <laughs> after the match, mm-hmm. I remember, and this had have been nineteen twenty. I was utterly appalled at the way men would um, talk about their girlfriends. Um, you know, just disparagingly, completely knocking them, and and very misogynistic, very sexist comments. And I remember being quite shocked by that. I think I'd probably been protected by that at boarding school, so it was a bit new to me, probably, mm. that you know, sexism, particularly as ours was a boys-only school, mm-hmm. so we didn't we didn't get to see girls that much. And when we did, I must admit, we were <laughs> we were very keen. I think was probably the best way to put it. Mm. Um, but I remember I remember thinking, what? Why are these men doing this? Why are they being so nasty? Why are they being so sexist? Uh, and of course, it. The answer to that question actually took me another 20, 30 years to work out, only relatively recently, partly with the Boys Do Cry book, have I actually got the answer to the question I was asking myself. Mm. But I'll come back to that, if I may. Sure. Um, Then, so I left university and um, started work. So I did the classic, um, well, we would call it middle class thing over in the UK, which is you go to school, you work your socks off, you get the best possible results, you go to university, and you start climbing the corporate ladder. So there was never any question in my mind, to be fair, that I was ever going to do anything else. It was what my parents expected of me, it's what my teachers expected of me, to start working with you know big companies and build a, a corporate career. So off I went and did just that, um, and was doing you know, pretty well, but interestingly, with complete lack of self-esteem. So although my results were good, I was running, my teams were doing well, that I was running and so on, my results were good, I still doubted my own ability. I still felt, so I brought some of the shame I'd had from school, I brought it with me into adulthood, even though there was no evidence that that was necessary. Uh, I won't say it was... It was not on the surface. It was just there in the background. So if I if I'd screwed something up, if I'd made a mistake, I was actually in international marketing. So we were um, making international um, TV uh, adverts, and of course different languages in in Europe. So there were German versions, French versions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's quite complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I messed one ad up. So I did. Um, probably lose my employer about a hundred thousand pounds which which then was quite a lot of money so uh, ever once i'd done that i was double checking myself the whole time 
and the, sh the the shame was really I think I don't think I realized it but it was bubbling up underneath uh, you know underneath the surface it was there yeah anyway uh, I carried on and um yeah. built a pretty successful career really when, when, um, you, when you say that oh, sorry. Shame, uh, yeah I'm sorry to interrupt when you say the shame was bubbling up from from previous life experiences um did you think that at the time or was this something you discovered later no absolutely not it was something i discovered later okay. i didn't i absolutely did not make the connection um but again it was shame it was letting people down um it, it, so it was a repeat experience and at that point i knew nothing as to be fair i think most people know nothing about their unconscious minds exactly. i had no idea yeah, that, that, I had no that, idea that that was even right. possible. And that's why I bring it up because if somebody is yeah. going through whatever it is they're going through, it, it may be something that requires help and, and they just don't realize it at the time. So, yeah, that's no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, and really, as a result of that, um, I had constant what I call mind chatter. So that, you know, the voice in my head was constantly double checking beating myself up have made the slightest mistake uh, and I started to pressurize myself hugely again not really realizing the outcome of what that that would actually have obviously uh, and certainly not in in no way was I going to put my hand up and ask for help um, in the corporate world I think particularly as a man well certainly 20 years ago you did not do that you you just didn't and I, from what I gather from my clients now, which I'll explain later, is that it's still pretty much the same now. You know, it's still, even though we've made progress in the UK with regards to mental health, there's a hell of a long way to go. And too many people still can't put their hands up for help. Um, so, yeah, there I was about where well, it would have been 22 years ago, something like that. Um, at the age of, where are we, 38, started to get really, really, really stressed. Uh, initially didn't re didn't know that that's what it was um, and of course this was made worse by the fact that I was doing a lot of international travel so uh, my typical week um, was I'd fly out on a Sunday afternoon about three o'clock to make sure that I was in Milan or Paris or wherever I was supposed to be for nine o'clock on the Monday morning and then most Fridays I'd fly back in at about 10 o'clock at night so I was absolutely exhausted. Uh, and one of the, again, shameful things that, um, uh, well, once I'd had a breakdown, actually I'm, I'm getting out of term with, this, with, with the timeline of the story. I'll, I'll come back to that. No problem. Uh, <laughs> um, right, so yes, getting more and more stressed and then eventually had to put my hand up and say, look, I'm really struggling here. I'm just not coping. Um, went to see my doctor and was signed off for a month. So it was quite serious. Um, and mm, it didn't go down well <laughs> with the employer, let's put it that way. And my boss was absolutely furious, mm. not not really understanding at all. So, and, and this, yeah, yeah so, no, no, no. So just to be clear, your, your doctor said when you say signed off, he said, Mark, you right. need to leave work yeah. for a month. And, and I yeah. would suspect he gave some sort of uh, written uh, statement uh, stating that and w was there any um, were there any prescriptions uh, anything 
not at that stage. Besides there that, wasn't. Okay. No, it was um, it was definitely diagnosed as stress. But you're quite right. There was a, a, a um, I had to get a piece of paper mm -hmm. um, to, to give my employer because yes, I, he insisted that I took a month a month out, mm. uh, um, which thank God I did. You know. Yeah. Um, so that was about 22 years ago. Then I went back and feeling better because I had rested properly. Of course, the problem then was my in-tray was a mile high uh, and some of the projects I, should, I was wanting to complete before um, taking the time out were now extremely urgent. So the, pre the, the stress rather ramped up very quickly as a result of that. I was having to catch up with things that I should have completed, you know, two, three, four weeks before, mm. uh, and went basically walked straight back into a load more stress. If if anything, more more a more stressful situation. I then lasted about another year, um, and that was <laughs> that was the breakdown. Um, I, what I hadn't realised, and and this is. I was, when I gave you the sort of summary about the story I wanted to tell, um, what I didn't realise um, until quite recently is that I am very strong emotionally, even though I've gone through some terrible stuff. And on the side, on the surface of it, I'm I'm weak, you know, because I've had a mini breakdown at school with shame. Um, you know, I took a month off for stress. And then obviously had a breakdown at the age of 40. What I hadn't appreciated was to be able to put up with all of the stress that I'd had. Um, you had to be extremely strong to be able to do that. Um, and the strength, I think, too, is what enabled me to survive with the, with the asthma in my first year of life. Because what I forgot to say was my chances for, for the first year were literally 50-50 of dying or surviving. Wow. Uh, Again, I can't remember that. Yeah. So, of course, my parents were absolutely terrified because of that, and that would have had an effect on me too. So I think what I've only just appreciated relatively recently is that I'm, I am actually very strong, and yet the majority of my life I haven't felt that way at all. I felt ashamed, weak, um, screwing up, letting people down. These are the things that really had the bigger impact on me and how I felt about myself until relatively recently. So there I was at 40, and it was literally, a, you know, it was a breakdown. Um, I went to see the doctor again, and he said, well, you know, this is really serious, Mark. Um, he wanted to put me on antidepressants, interestingly, um, but I come from a family that doesn't do medication unless it's very, very, very essential. So I made a decision, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend to people, by the way, I made a decision not to take antidepressants. I did some research, um, and again, this is 20 years ago, did some research and thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to be in control um, of my ability to, to make myself better. Um, and even then, what I realized was that antidepressants really just, they were temporary elastoplast. And as that, they are very good, by the way, as a temporary elastoplast to help somebody who is, absolutely devastated who is really struggling who is not functioning actually just take some time out um but the problem is that if you you know you well they're addictive for a start and we should only be on them for six months if you read the literature for the antidepressants i'm sure it's the same in the u.s 
we should only be on them for six months and then we should start coming off them. And, and I and researched all that and thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, my, my family were very supportive. And I said, right, I'm going to fight my way through this because I am also very curious as a person, very inquisitive, very curious. And I wanted to know um, how I was making the mess in my head. I knew the problem now that I was, I, you know, I resigned. I wasn't working anymore. Um, in fact, if I'm honest with you, I was kind of made redundant in a way that would be now called constructive dismissal. But there we go. I, I would have had a legal case, mm. uh, although I wasn't capable of fighting it, I have to say. Um, so I wasn't working, so I got time. Um, it, probably the first month or two, I... I was not functioning. I, you know, I probably left the house uh, in two months, probably left, left the house three times, something like that. Some days didn't get out of bed uh, at all. And, you know, it's one of those, uh, that actually brings tears to the eyes, but it's one of those classic family moments. Um, my four-year-old daughter clambered onto my bed one day. Uh, and of course I'd, been um at home for about solidly for about three months and said gave me a, a hug around my neck and said i miss you daddy mm. and i thought what was she talking about I, i've been I, i've been more at home for the last three months probably than i have in the last you know 20 years uh, and it took me a while and i thought oh god right <laughs> she doesn't mean physically she means emotionally mentally and spiritually i wasn't there i just wasn't there even at four she recognized that yeah exactly well she obviously because yeah i knew i wasn't off didn't necessarily understand that's what it was but wasn't functioning and of course i burst into floods and floods and floods of tears and i thought right this is it this is the kick up the backside i need to go and sort myself out um and gradually that is it that's what i did i started to get very interested uh in how the mind works because i i knew the problem was in my head uh, i also fundamentally believed that it, it was possible for me um to to break it to get out of it don't ask me why i couldn't tell you why but from that point onwards i believed that i could sort myself out um and obviously eventually i did so I was reading books on how the mind functions, on mental health, self-improvement books, um, and to date I've read 357, I think it is, wow. <laughs> books. Yeah, exactly, in this sort of area. And so I'm still, 20 years later, absolutely, avidly, you know, hungrily devouring anything um, that's got to do with the mind. And, of course, the great thing today is neuroscience is just exploding, so we're learning so much about the mind and the brain. But anyway, um, so I was reading book, you know, book after book after book, which was giving me, well, the message I was taking from them was, yes, I can sort this out. Um, and then I did something slightly unusual. Um, well, unusual for my generation of the family, not unusual for the previous generation. My mum was actually one of the first chiropractors in the UK. Oh, wow. Um, we, we, we in the UK with chiropractic, we're a long way behind you guys. Hmm. So she was one of the first. Uh, she was one of seven students. Uh, now, when would this be? Blimey. Um, 
you know, this would be probably 40 years ago, mm. uh, was one of the first seven students that was actually trained by one of the bigger schools of chiropractic. Anyway, so what we would regard as the alternate health or the, you know, um, not the mainstream is in the family. But of course, I'd taken the mainstream route in terms of commerce and building the corporate ladder. So the strange thing that I did was I actually, having started to understand how the mind worked, reading books, I actually got trained as a hypnotherapist, um, which completely came out of the blue for all my friends who thought that was weird and what the hell was I thinking of doing yeah. and so on. And if I'm honest with you, my wife struggled with that too. And, I, and actually, I need to talk about my wife now, think about it. Um, she has a very scientific background. She's actually a medical sales rep. So, you know, she believes in medication and so on very strongly. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it's something we don't talk about <laughs> because, unfortunately, I'm the other end of the spectrum. So having started to um, train as this weird, uh, maybe hypnotherapy, I think hypnotherapy is more, again, more mainstream possibly in the US than it is here. It's still regarded as being a bit weird over here, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, it, changes are coming because the mental health system in the UK is just on its knees. Mm. Uh, and so more and more people are seeking health outside mm -hmm. um uh, certainly 20 years ago to train as a hypnotherapist was a, a strange thing to do in most people's books um including my wife's um and and actually most of my family uh and to some degree the shame started to kick back in again what am i doing uh why, why am i doing this weird stuff um you know i'm, I'm disappointing my family all that stuff surfaced back up again mm. uh, Nevertheless, I stuck with it, and, and actually, I went to see a hypnotherapist, and that was actually the first time that I actually thought, okay, hang on. It, it, my, I went for, I think, five sessions, and the fog was starting to part properly in my head, hmm. and that was, that was massive. So as a result of that, I thought, okay, this is what I need to do. Uh, I then got trained in NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, um, and also as a coach. Now, all of these things, NLP is it's, it's quite well known, particularly in the corporate world now, as a lot of you know, um, execs get trained in NLP in the, in the UK and in Europe. But 20 years ago, that was not the case. NLP was, again, in the slightly weird alternative health bracket, yes. um, not, not mainstream at all. Uh, and coaching, life coach, that again was unusual. Um, so I... I you know, it was definitely way out of the mainstream. Anyway, gradually, I was getting myself, I was getting better and better. I was understanding, and this is the crucial thing, understanding how I was creating the mess in my head, why it was there, what my unconscious was trying to do to keep me safe, and why that was backfiring, why it wasn't keeping me safe. And therefore, I started to understand the changes that I actually needed to make in my life, my lifestyle. Uh, my behavior, my thinking patterns. I actually understood what it was I needed to do. Um, and at the same time, I set up my own, um, well, psychotherapy clinic, I suppose you'd call it. I never actually named it that. And I started to help people with stress, anxiety, and depression. So, you know, a lot of the training that I got, the, the hypnotherapy, the, the NLP and the coaching, obviously extremely useful, got me started. But actually, <clears throat> I think my own experience of breakdown with um, stress, anxiety, severe stress, 
severe anxiety and severe depression all at the same time. I think learning, uh, coming out of that and learning, it has been um, worth 10, 15, 100 times the value of what I learned academically, if you like. Sure, uh, yeah. I because mean, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's at the coal face, as we say in the UK. Yeah. It's real life. Yeah, you actually experienced it, plus reading over 300 books. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LaVon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LaVon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as is productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LaVon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LaVon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact LaVon at soul at pitmanproperties.com. up to uh, hypnotherapy and uh, NLP just a second mark and, and you said sure. you went to uh, five sessions of hypnotherapy for those of us including myself that, that don't know really anything about it can you give us a peek into what those sessions are like okay um, uh, well <laughs> slightly terrifying to start with actually really uh, oh and what I haven't said by the way actually was I actually went to see I went to see two hypnotherapists initially and I didn't like either of them. I didn't, I didn't really trust them if I'm honest. Sure. And again, it, it was new to me, hypnotherapy. So I'd never really experienced it. And I thought, well, if I can't trust them and I don't like them, I can't, I, I just can't relax. Right. So it was the third chap who was recommended to me. We got on immediately. Um, he was, yeah, definitely alternative and so on. But, uh, what he did do was explain what hypnotherapy is to me very clearly, very simply, and very easily without any... Uh, t it took away all my anxiety because, I, again, I'm assuming it's probably the same in the States. Most people, as you say, don't know really much about hypnotherapy. And if they do, they're probably scared of it mm. because for most people, it means losing control. Yeah. Uh, actually, that's not true. That That is how it appears... And I think the biggest problem we've had in the UK, and I'm, again, I'm sure it's probably the same in the States, is the most the, most people have come across not hypnotherapy, but stage hypnosis. That's most people's, you know, there's been TV programs, not for a while, actually, in the UK. Um, there's a guy called Paul McKenna, 
really very, quite well known, bit of a celebrity over here, um, but made his name um, doing, you know, um, stage hypnosis, which, and it looks, you know, people are doing, they're being made to sweep the stage with an imaginary broom, um, they cluck like chickens, because it's about entertainment. So the problem is that it makes hypnosis look stupid. Um, and the, the and of course, the hypnotist, the stage hypnotist, wants to show what control he has over the people on the stage, mm. which is why people, you know, get the impression that it's they lose control and the hypnotist has got uh, the control. Nothing could be further from the truth. So, having that was indeed my um, assumption. That's what you know hypnosis was like. But I was desperate at the time, so I thought, well. Okay, I can't trust the first two, but I kind of trust this guy. But what he explained to me was actually hypnosis is just being very relaxed. Hmm. So you tend to have, you know, a, um, a bench. You're, you're lying down. He threw a blanket over me. Got a nice comfortable pillow. Uh, you know, shut the curtains. There was one light that stained on, uh, and so on. And I felt, yeah, I was very physically relaxed because at the end of the day. When you're lying there, very still, comfortably relaxed, everything slows down. So your breathing rate slows down, your heart rate slows down. And when that happens, guess what? Your mind slows down. It, and in fact, the experience of hypnosis and um, meditation are not that different. The key is that the brainwave activity slows and, and uh, you know, it goes to a much a completely different level of brainwave activity that's all hypnosis is actually doing is allowing somebody to relax to the point where the conscious rational logical mind that's continually analyzing uh, processing arguing things just goes quiet hmm. so um what i tend to say to people now you know my clients now is there's actually a huge spectrum of what being in, in hypnosis actually means. Most people think that somebody snaps their fingers and the person falls asleep. Um, actually, very, very, nobody, well, very few people actually fall asleep. Um, the being Without going into too much detail, I guess, at this point, being in hypnosis can be anywhere between where you hear every single word that the therapist is saying to you, but you're nice and relaxed, and your conscious mind is quiet, all the way down to the other end of the scale, where to all intensive purposes, actually you are asleep, and you don't necessarily hear what the therapist is saying. And most people go between those two ends of the spectrum. So in other words, you know, they, they hear something, and then the mind wanders off somewhere, it's very quiet, disappears, as it were, um, essentially, I suppose, into semi-sleep, and then come back again, they hear a bit more, and then it wanders off again. So most, most people's minds are wandering in and out. Mm -hmm. But the point, about, the point about hypnosis is it's very, very, it's very easy, providing you're happy to relax. So you have to be able to trust uh, you know, the, the, the therapist, because if you don't, you're not going to relax properly. So when my, I often get asked, well, can you hypnotize everybody, Mark? And the answer is yes with one proviso, providing they want to be, because you can't force somebody into hypnosis. Now, in terms of making change, which obviously is why, well, what I, why I went to see this chap and why my clients come to see me, is, again, without going into too much detail, 
um, the conscious mind that's analyzing and, and thinking and so on has to be still, has to be quiet. And at that point, the unconscious is actually available essentially to talk to. But the language you have to use is very much about imagination. Um, because one of the things people wouldn't realize is that the unconscious part of your mind does not know the difference between uh, reality and imagination. It doesn't know the difference between what is actually happening to you and what you're imagining happening to you, mm. which is why panic, panic attacks, for example, are absolutely devastating because the experience somebody has based on imagination, i.e. that the dog is going to come up and bite them, shall we say, it's not true. But the unconscious believes it is true, um, and because it's imagined uh, the whole, you know, the whole nasty process. I haven't explained that very well, actually. Sorry. Um, the, the key yeah. is the unconscious doesn't know the difference between reality and imagination. Therefore, the way you get people to make changes is actually use imagination as the language of the hypnosis session. So this is why you'll, you know, you, you may have heard. That uh, if you know anything about hypnosis, you, the, the therapist is always asking you to imagine yourself on a beach, for example, where it's all nice and warm and everything's very comfortable. Mm. Um, but w w you make changes by, uh, by in, well, the therapist instructs the unconscious to imagine making changes and, the, and providing it's set up properly, the unconscious will make those changes. I mean, I've made that sound very simplistic, but in essence, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, but it, there's a skill, obviously, because it's the language has to be right, um, the imagined process has to be right, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and it, more importantly, it has to be right for that particular client. Yeah. Uh, which is why, where from my point of view, that the life coaching was absolutely essential. Yeah. Uh, to what I do, so I. <laughs> it's not going to sound right, but what I need need to do is get inside my or you know essentially get inside my clients heads not literally but to understand at a fundamentally um deep level what they're going through what the thinking patterns are and so on yeah uh, has that helped a bit scott sorry I'm, I'm no no probably feel like... no no you're 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 good um th this career change that you went through and and i'm sure it was a bit unsettling for uh, for you and and for your family at first and uh and how long ago was that that that, that process that, started? that was that was about 19 years ago now so okay. it was, um i got trained basically over over the year 2000 and uh 2001 and, and then set up set up my practice in 2002 yeah well congratulations on that and and that is a huge change going from international marketing uh traveling and all <laughs> that to what you do now yeah. i mean how, how long uh, did that process take to, to where uh, you finally said, okay, um, everybody was comfortable, including yourself, this is what I do now, this this is my calling? Actually, very quickly, Scott, to be honest, mm. I, when I, when I really was getting myself uh, working my, my own way through, and I was really seeing that the end of the tunnel was quite close. That, that's when it hit me. My God, it's, this isn't just for me. This is my calling. It, and it is a calling at the end of the day. Um, but I think the reason um, that I am good at what I do is partly I've been doing it for 20 years nearly. But actually, when you've experienced it yourself, 
you can work with somebody on a completely different level um, of understanding than if you've just learnt, you know, th through a, a course on how to do hypnotherapy and so on. Um, but having gone and, and in terms of empathy, it's you know I can empathise with my clients, so I can genuinely put myself in their shoes. Yeah. Rather, rather than sympathising, because there's a massive difference between empathy, empathy and sympathy, which people often don't understand. Yeah. I don't sympathise with my clients; I empathise with them because I've, I've been in a worse place than most of them. You know, well, virtually all of them, to be honest. Yeah, and the um, way I understand the definition to me of empathy is simply a reflection of feeling. It, it's not necessarily feeling sorry for them, like sympathy but reflecting their feelings so that you're yeah, saying, absolutely. I understand. Is yeah. that correct? Is uh, that, is that, uh, and it, it, it is exactly, it's, it's, it's communicating that you genuinely understand what they're going through. Yeah. Which tends to mean you have to have done it yourself really. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, in the opening, uh, in, in your bio where, you stated that uh, we completely misunderstand stress, anxiety, and depression yeah. in the West. Yeah. In the um, yeah, what what does what, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, th th this 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 is huge, Scott. At the end of the day, and it's partly because I haven't gone the, down the traditional route. I've not. I don't have a degree in psychotherapy. Uh, um, I'm not a CV. Again, I'm assuming you have, yeah, you must have CBT in the, in the US. CBT, I'm not a counselor. That's not what I do. I'm not, I don't work in the mainstream and I've developed my own way of doing it. Um, but this is a very moot point um, because stress, anxiety, and depression are regarded as mental illnesses. But stress less so at the end of the day, although to be perfectly frank, my, most of my clients couldn't tell you whether they were coming for stress or anxiety or depression quite often, because it's a mixture of all three. Uh, you know, it's, it's for doctors to put a single label on people with most of them, how they're experiencing their problems is not right. Mm. Uh, but because they're regarded as mental illnesses, um, we, what, what the medical profession do is they, uh, for a patient or a client, they will either get them to medicate their problems or manage them. So this is a little outspoken, and I, I don't mean to offend um, people at all, but this is how I've you know, understood um, things through my own experiences and my own education, I suppose. Um, so CBT, for example, the classic example of that is anger management hmm. uh, or stress management. Well, why do you want to manage stress? Why do you want to manage anger? You don't want the anger. You don't want the stress. And yet somehow managing it seems to be good enough. Do, do you see what I mean? Sure. And it isn't good enough because if you're managing it or medicating it, it's still there. There's a ba It's a Band-Aid, basically, that you're putting on it. Yeah, exa exactly. And, and, and the, it's not a solution to the problem. And the problem is actually managing stress Unless the stress goes away or the stressful situation goes away, you cannot manage it. And I'm afraid, well, and that's exactly what I did, Scott. <laughs> you yeah. know, I was signed off for a month with yeah. stress. And then yeah. what did I do? What did I change in that time? Absolutely nothing. Came right back. And I went right back in and within a month was struggling like hell. 
Yeah. And that, that unfortunately, is what most people do. Stress, anxiety, and depression are not mental illnesses. What they are is signals from our system that life's not working, that there's something wrong. Therefore, we need to stand back, have a look, um, and then change something. You see, as soon as you change your life um, and you stop putting yourself in a stressful situation, for example, the stress goes away. Mm. So had I got another job that probably didn't involve international travel um, and there was less stressful, the stress would have gone. Yep. Literally. Um, I know it sounds silly, but trying to manage it and stay in the same job, and that's what we do, unfortunately. We're not, we don't regard stress, anxiety, depression as signals from our system saying, Oi, mate, your life's not working. Do something. We don't see that. We think we have to manage it and continue to do what we're doing. Yeah. Well, that, uh, and that's, yeah, it's a you, definition you, of insanity. Uh, exactly. Doing the same thing and, and expecting things to change. And, exactly. Yeah. But that, unfortunately, is the way the medical profession is set up. Mm. And, of course, the medical profession, generally speaking, treats symptoms and not problems. Yeah. So even, even you know, other even physical problems, they quite often treat the symptoms and not the cause. Until you treat the cause, the problem is not going to go away. Yeah. Uh, I feel so strongly about this, Scott, I, so strongly. But, um, and what I haven't said yet um, for your listeners is over those 19 years, I've seen nearly 3,000 people for, to help them beat stress, anxiety and depression. Now, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of experience. And, of course, everybody does stress, anxiety and depression differently. And what I always say is I learn from every single one of my clients. I'm open to the learning all the time. Um, and that is why I think I have a completely different way of looking at these things, uh, the stress, the anxiety and depression, than the mainstream medical profession do. Yeah. Is And essentially what I've been doing, by the way, partly because of my training, if I'm honest, um, I, I, in fact, I now, now don't describe myself as a therapist. I describe myself uh, as a therapeutic coach yeah. because the vast majority of my work is is teaching people how their unconscious mind works, how they're creating the stress, the, the reality they don't want, why it's actually happening, how the mind is actually doing it, where the problems have come on and, uh, and so on. So I'm teaching them and then coaching them so that they can actually understand for themselves what their issues are and what they need to do to change things. Um, so if I'm not really honest with you, um, the hypnotherapy has been most useful for me because it's taught me how the unconscious works. Uh, and what I always say to people, and I say it to you really, is how much do you know about your unconscious, how, how it works? Yeah. And the answer is nothing. Most of us don't know anything about it. Right. And yet it's, um, and again, most people don't understand this either. 91% of our overall mind, 91% is unconscious. So 91% of how we create our reality is unconscious. So picking up on my childhood shame, that theme, that's why that kept coming back and back and back and back. Because the unconscious, I trained myself to think that I was useless, worthless, hopeless, let people down all the shame, it was it was all there because I'd never dealt with it. But yeah. I didn't know that. And that was all, that was also part of the breakdown. Um, and, and I was going to say something about my wife. My, 
my wife found it very difficult, if I'm honest with you, to cope with my breakdown, and she would admit that. But she did the thing for the family that needed to happen. She stood up, she got a job, because at that stage we got three young kids and she wasn't working. She hadn't been working for about 10 years. Uh, she got a job and she held the family together. Wow. Now that's, that's it, exactly, and she needed to do that. But guess what effect that had on me? Shame. Sure. Com shame. Yeah. I'm the one. I'm the man. I'm the one who's supposed to be earning the money. I'm the one who's, you know, supposed to be holding the family together. And it, it actually made things worse for me. Yeah. Which, which sounds pathetic, really. But that was, this is what the unconscious does. So I, and even while I was getting better, by the way, I still felt shame for a long time that I, you know, I'd let my family down, that my wife had had to stop, you know, focusing on the kids so much and, and get a job and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and if I'm really honest with you, I've only probably dealt with that in the last five, six, seven years. Hmm. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's... And this, and this is what most... Uh, and uh, if I may, can I pick up the 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 man, the man theme? Of course, if you like. From yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. And I think I think this is a good uh, place to mention that. Uh, of course, Mark is the co-author of Big Boys Do Cry, along with our previous guest uh, Andy Balker. So, uh, yeah, uh, let's let's pick it up there, and I think that um, coincides with uh, with with the project that uh, you worked on with this book with Andy. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it was only writing my story in that way about the shame, the man shame, um, and the other guys doing exactly the same thing that none of us realised. And I mean, we all we all wrote our stories individually. Essentially, we'd never met each other before, mm. um, and then we started to read these other stories. That, oh my god! Oh my god! So it's not just me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not alone no. in this, uh, and and it, it and it has been. A more, um, we haven't put a lot of effort into the Facebook page, if we're really honest with you. But it's gone wild. It's gone. It's it's hit a real note um, about the way men are brought up. Men are brought up not to experience their emotions. I mean, I remember my dad continually telling me to stop crying. Mm -hmm. Now, when I had asthma, I was crying a lot. Mm. You know, I was not. I was not healthy. And I just, and I remember it time after time. Boys don't cry. Big yeah. boys don't cry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and that you know that's that's a, I think the youngsters would call that a meme now. Um, you know that that is a that's a received wisdom that boys don't. Well, that's absolute twaddle. Sorry, that's a very English word. That's absolute <laughs> rubbish. That boys don't cry. And one of the things now I'm going into schools and I'm teaching mental wellness. Um, and I'm teaching it to parents as well. And I say to the parents, for God's sake, encourage your boys to cry. And of course, there's a look of horror on their face mm -hmm. until I to explain what actually happens. If you bottle up your emotions, which is what boys effectively are brought up to do, you bottle up your emotions, um, it, it goes into stress and anxiety and depression very easily. Um, and if you don't deal with it, the mind just goes into a spin. So all of those, stress, anxiety, and depression, when they get to the point where they're seemingly unmanageable, um, is it, it's a constant loop of toxic thinking. 
that that they can't no no that that you can't get out of. It's the voice in the back of the head telling you you're useless, you're not good enough, you're pathetic. All these things, and if you bottle stuff up, it, it, at some point it'll just come out. You can't bottle it up, and men are very good at bottling their emotions up, but but ultimately. Uh, and the, the other thing, by the way, and this is really important, is that because we've been brought up as, as a generation uh, to worry about what people think about us, and of course it's getting even worse these days with social media for the for the youngsters, but we've been brought up to continually worry about what other people think about us, we have to hide you know, who we are, and we have to put, the way I describe it is, we have to wear a mask. So men have to wear, you know, the big macho guy, the successful man, the confident man, never makes mistakes, is dynamic. They, we have to present that sort of mask to the world, that sort of hologram to the world. Well, underneath that, we know damn well that's not who we are. Yeah. And we go, go around, I'm exaggerating with the language to make the point, but we go around parading ourselves as being this fantastic human being. And the corporate world, you kind of have to do that. You have to pretend, and this is the point. Well, that's the culture, you're, right? Of the corporate sorry, world. That, yeah, in the, particularly in the corporate world, because yeah. you know, the corporate world, again, being slightly simplistic, but it's it's all about getting ahead. Uh, there's, and one of the things that I really struggled with myself was there was no respect. You didn't respect your colleagues, and you were expected to respect your boss even if you didn't. Sure. Which is just crazy. So the boss felt no compunction to earn your respect whatsoever yeah um, so the, the the kind of and by the way these were american companies i'm not going to name them for obvious reasons but <laughs> um uh you know that the culture that we worked in was savage it was and, and you had to, to walk into the office with a suit of armor on you know every day and you had to present this hologram of this magnificent human being knowing damn well underneath that's not who you were and actually, you know, when I'm doing um, conferences and so on, it's great when you've got three, four, five hundred people in the audience and you just watch the faces when you say, well, this is what most, yeah, or this is what I tend to do is use my own experience. Um, so, well, when I was in the corporate world, you know, I, I'd leave home first thing in the morning. I'd already got my mask on so people couldn't see how useless, worthless and hopeless I was. I got my suit of armor on because I knew as soon as I got into the office, somebody would be trying to stab me in the back. And I'd got this hologram up to show the show everybody what amazing human being I was. <laughs> and when you watch an audience and you've got four or 500 faces, you can see people go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was me. That, that's what I do. Yep. Actually, <laughs> that's what most of us do because we're worried about what people think about us. We put up this version of ourselves that's not true. And I think that is actually worse for men because we've been brought up to be strong, powerful, decisive, crying, not hoping hell. You're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to show your emotions. Well, human beings are emotional beings. You can't not. And I, I think it's a massive problem. I mean, the... You know, in the world today, quite rightly, the feminists have got the microphone, if you like. They're making more noise, and there's a long way to get, you know, uh, uh, equality, uh, and, and there's a lot of changes still need to be happening. But the interesting thing with this book is, and the website, the, or the um, Facebook page, the women understand, probably better than the men do, what's actually going on. The women have really related to the message in the book. 
They've yeah. understood, as I say, probably the men have understood the message and gone, well, no, I, I can't, I'm not allowed to do it. I'm still not allowed to cry. So that's that's our message, um, you know, to the men out there. We have to experience our emotions because if you don't, um, well, you know, it's not good. Uh, and it'll certainly end up in uh, shame and stress and anxiety and depression and so on. So with my own story, Scott, it's probably only in the last two or three years, and bear in mind I've been doing this sort of work for a long, long time, and and right, being a co-author of that book suddenly brought that man shame into a spotlight for me and thought, oh, my God, that is the roller coaster of my life. Yeah. You know, the peaks are success, confidence, um, probably sporting prowess, all these things. And the troughs are the shame, the depression, and it. But having worked that out, I'm now. I won't say in control of my life. I don't think any of us are in control of our lives. But I, I'm. It's made such a difference for me personally at an identity level, for who I am, how I see myself. Um, so, for example, I'm very happy to admit to anybody that I've had a breakdown. I don't feel any shame over that now. Um, uh, and, and in fact, the other thing is sharing that with people helps people. And, uh, uh, yeah, the, the trouble with mental health, Scott, there's so much to say. So I'm, I'm bearing in mind, I'm, I'm, I'm talking away here, you know, 10 to the dozen, but, um, Oh, you're fine. The, you're fine. The, the, there's such, there's such work to do. And the solution to mental health problems, um, is education. It's actually teaching people how the mind works how stress, anxiety, and depression work, what they are, what the system is trying to get you to do. And then the coaching is to find, to allow somebody to find for themselves why, what is causing the stress, what do I need to change? Uh, and that's why I, I'm now in the process of totally shifting my work. And it's partly come from my clients, actually, who, who for the last year or two, some of them have been sh not shouting at me, they've been telling me off for hiding in my office. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and, I said, and they said, Mark, you've got to understand what, you're what you've taught me, nobody knows. I'm now teaching some of this stuff to my family and even then to them it's making a difference. You've got to get out there and you've got to start teaching people mental wellness education. So that is now what I'm doing. I'm working, starting very small, to start working with schools because over here, and it's probably the same in the States, the the anxiety levels in the youngsters is just horrific. Yeah. The, the statistics are absolutely ghastly. Um, you know, well, over here anyway, the, the statistic for, well, for the whole population is that one in six of us uh, has a mental health problem in any one week. Wow. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, in the UK, that's 11 million people. Mm. So 11 million people... Um, today are struggling with stress anxiety and depression wow that's a lot and and the other and the the other thing is 75 percent of those people in the uk do not get any treatment for it at all and of those that do one in ten have to wait a year for mental health therapy one in five have to wait two years and the reason for that is and then i won't quote any more uk stats but the reason <laughs> for that is um, of the overall health budget in the UK, mental health it gets 13% of the dollar. 
13% of the dollar value of the total health budget in the UK, um, public health budget, 13% of that is for mental health. When 75% of doctor's visits, uh, general practitioner's visits, are for stress. It's insane. That's and the system lopsided. is not coping, and it cannot cope. In the UK, if we were to treat those 11 million people, you are talking hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds or dollars every year. Well, the government doesn't have that money. Yeah. And it never will do. The, the, the problem is too big. And therefore, you, we as, as a nation, and it's probably the same for the US, we need to stand back and, get, and think outside the box. And the answer is to start educating kids. You know, there is no mental health. There is no emotional intelligence education in, in the British education system whatsoever. The total focus is about, um, is, is about academic intelligence. Uh, and yet, interestingly, the HR directors of um, uh, the, big the big corporates are very categoric now. What they're looking for from school leavers and graduates, university graduates, they are looking for emotional intelligence and creative intelligence backed up by academic intelligence. And the reason for that is computers, AI, computer algorithms and so on. People, more and more business is going to be about people because the computer is going to take away a lot of the, you know, I mean, the accountancy profession, for example, as far as I can see, is going to get devastated in the next five or ten years. Yeah. Um, and the school system is not teaching any of this in the UK. Yeah. Uh, so the, the schools that I talk to is that, yeah, they're, they're within reason, they're biting my hand off. But the problem they've got is finding the time in the school week to actually fit me in. Yeah. Because the pressure for the kids is on passing exams. Yeah. Anyway, very, so very, but, yeah, very so important, groundbreaking uh, stuff you're doing there, sir. Well, I, I hope so. And what, what I'm about to do, Scott, just to finish this off, is um, I'm about to set up a, a government petition to make um, mental wellness education compulsory in schools. Because, it, you know, when kids understand what I teach my clients, um, they learn at a young age, they will never get you know debilitating stress anxiety and depression they will not get it yeah. yeah because they'll they'll a they'll know what to do that they've got to change something that's not everybody because the people living in desperate poverty they probably can't make the changes so um that's a slightly different situation but understanding it making the changes in in their lives to deal with the stress and the anxiety, and the other thing is being able to share it with their mates, you know, in the classroom, because uh, in, in the stigma, or if you get educated in mental wellness, the stigma goes on, uh, you know, you, you will not have a problem um, owning up to your friends that you've got, you've got a stress or an anxiety problem if you understand how the mind works. Yeah. So, uh, and that's why, and it is, I know, uh, it's my old marketing career coming back in, I think, <laughs> but that's why I honestly believe if we... Um, dealt with stress, anxiety and depression the right way through mental wellness education, particularly at schools, we could wipe them out in a generation, literally. And I mean that, I actually believe that. The trouble is, of course, putting the infrastructure in to do that, well, that's going to take a long time. Um, it's got to, the, the governments are going to have to completely rework uh, 
the school curriculum to do it properly. He is the co-author of Big Boys Do Cry. Again, his website is MarkNewyMethod.com. That's MarkNewyMethod.com. We'll, of course, have this all in the Yurkron show notes. And Mark, uh, really great stuff. This conversation has been very enlightening for me. I'm sure it will be for our listeners. Really appreciate you taking time to, to come on and, uh, and talk about this very, very important subject of mental health uh, today. And uh, we like to wrap things up on your chronic course with our, what we call our legacy question. And so um, if in a hundred years from now, someone perhaps maybe extended family or, or just anyone listening to this recording um, is listening, what message do you want them to hear? What do you want them to remember about Mark Newey or your, your message uh, to the world? What would you like to tell them? I, I think, hopefully it doesn't sound arrogant, but I, I would like um, for them to be saying, well, Mark was the guy that instigated the mental wellness revolution. It's quite succinct. <laughs> I, I love it. You know, it'll fit on a billboard. It, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's great. No, that, I don't think that sounds uh, uh, arrogant or, or anything like that at all. I mean, uh, let's uh, shoot for the stars and think big. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Well, Mark, uh, amazing conversation. Uh, really appreciate you taking the, the time to come on your cron and uh, thank you very much for all of that and, and good luck to you and, and your future endeavors. Thank, well, thank you, Scott, as well. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Believe me, I, I the message is very important to me. I'm very passionate about it, as you probably gathered. And, and sharing my own experience as the other guys with the Boys Do Cry book is absolutely essential part of it. And I, I, part of my message to people is always to encourage them to share. Uh, yeah, I was going to swear then, so I won't say that, but share their stuff. Let's put it that way, because <laughs> it makes such a difference to people. And so I want to thank you for actually giving me the opportunity to share my story. Um, and by the way, if anybody does want to get in touch with me via the website, please do. I always say that I'm very open to being communicated with. I'd love to chat to people, certainly email correspondence and so on. Very happy to do that. Great. Well, thanks again, Mark. Absolute pleasure, Scott. Nice to meet you. You as well, sir. Hey everyone, Scott here to let you know about a special promotion we're having at Your Kwan. We are looking for companies that would like to advertise on our podcast. So we are offering advertising space at $25 per podcast. That's only 25 bucks to have your business on a podcast episode. That means every time the episode is played, people are going to hear about your business. And your commercial stays on that podcast forever. So that's a great deal, right? So if you're interested, email me, scott at yourcron.com. That's S-C-O-T-T at Y-O-U-R-C-H-R-O-N.com. Scott at yourcron.com. I would love to hear from you.